You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. I'm glad there wasn't an entrance exam to become a Christian where I had to answer some questions and make sure I had all the the T's crossed and I's dotted so God would accept me. That's not how I became a Christian at all. I became a Christian when I was nine years of age, my pastor reading me some scripture. And I didn't know a lot, but I did know at that moment that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus loved me and wanted to save me. So at nine years of age, I bowed my head and called on the name of Jesus, invited him into my life as my personal Lord and Savior, and I met him. There was no entrance exam, simply faith and trust in Jesus and his finished work. Now since then, I've been learning all that happened at that moment when I was born again. All of the spiritual realities that were true when I was converted. When I stepped out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I've learned a lot. And I look back and, and marvel at all that happened at that moment. In other words, the longer I am saved, the more I fathom the amazing grace of God. It just keeps getting better. As I learn more and more of who Christ is and what he has done and is doing in me. And so this morning we're going to, we're going to study an important doctrine of the faith. The doctrine of imputed righteousness. And you say, what is that, Pastor? Well, I'm going to explain that to you. But this is not meant to be an entrance exam to get you into Christianity. It's meant to help you to understand what happened when you met Jesus. And maybe to explain to you, if you're not a Christian, why you need Jesus. And what I want to show you is that God lavished His grace upon us at the moment of conversion. And it's still lavishing His grace upon us today. In fact, we're calling this series Grace Upon Grace. We, we had a short break between Ecclesiastes. We're starting Ephesians in a couple of weeks. And, and in that little break, I wanted to orient our hearts toward grace. Now, I began to think about uh, the Gospel of John chapter 1 where it says of Jesus, From His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. I began to think about the grace of God. I began to think about this. I, I began to think about how when we know Jesus, not only do we have peace with God... But the Lord wants us to experience the peace of God as a daily reality in our Christian lives. I mean, if all God gave us was peace with God, that would be enough. But he also offers us the peace of God experientially. And, and then we, we talked about how God justified us. He, he declared us righteous. And if that's all he'd ever done, that would be enough. But not only did he declare us righteous, he made us friends of God. We have a relationship with God, grace upon grace. And this morning I want to talk about the grace of imputed righteousness. And we're going to begin in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 5, the very end of that chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You found your place. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. The Bible says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you in this moment as we, as we see, Lord, in your word, a little bit more of what you have done for us. Lord, as we study your word, we anticipate growing in our love and admiration for you. Lord, we anticipate being astonished by your mercy and your love and your grace. And I pray that as we study your word, you would move in our hearts by your spirit, give us understanding so that we can leave this place today changed. Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, and we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we talk about imputed righteousness, I want to discuss this doctrine under three different headings. First of all, I want to give you some information. And then secondly, I want to share with you some illustrations. But third, I'm excited to get to the third point, third heading... I want to share with you some implications of this doctrine for your day-to-day living. Let's begin with information because you just throw out a phrase like imputed righteousness and say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I want to explain what I mean by imputed righteousness. And it goes back to this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. There are other verses that speak of this as well, Philippians 3, Romans 5. But I want to begin with, with verse 21 because it so clearly and succinctly teaches this doctrine of imputed righteousness. But look what it says at the first part of that verse. For our sake he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. That speaks of the cross. Jesus Christ left the splendor and glory of heaven, took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he went to the cross in obedience to his Father and because of his love for us. And on the cross, the Bible says, he became sin. Now notice there it says, he knew no sin. Jesus Christ was perfect, spotless, unblemished. He never did anything wrong. And yet, on the cross, he took all of your sin and guilt and shame and all of my sin and guilt and shame upon himself. He placed it upon his shoulders. And on the cross, the wrath of God that our sin deserves was poured out upon Jesus who died in our place. He took the punishment for our sins. That's why it says there, the first part of that verse... He became sin who knew no sin. So let me sum that up by saying this. When we are born again, our sins are forgiven 
based upon the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, what substitutionary atonement means, he paid the penalty we deserve to pay. He shed his precious blood to to pay the, the price that we deserve to pay because of our sin. Because he died on the cross for our sins, if we embrace him as our personal Lord and Savior, if we place our faith and trust in him because of his shed blood, our sins are forgiven. Our sins are, as it were, washed away. That's the the, the understanding of forgiveness. And, and by the way, let me just say parenthetically, isn't it good to know that in Christ your sins are forgiven? I mean, every one of them completely washed away, no longer held to your account. Our sins were placed on Christ. He became sin for us. So he could die in our places. In fact, it says over in Romans 5, 8 that God demonstrates or God proves his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when we were saved, the moment of conversion for me, nine years of age, we were saved, our sins were washed away, we were forgiven. Amen? But... That's not all that happened at the moment of conversion. In fact, you need to read the second part of verse 21. Look what it says. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, on the cross, Jesus got our sin. And at the moment of conversion, we got his righteousness, his perfection. His perfect morality that he lived out upon this earth. His perfect obedience. We got that when we were saved. The great reformer Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. Jesus got our sin. We got his righteousness. We got his perfection. And that happened at the moment of conversion. Now, when I was nine, I could not have even spelled the word imputed. Or righteousness. There was no no exam for me to take. I just trusted Christ, right? But when I was nine, that's exactly what happened. Jesus took my sin and, and applied his shed blood to my spiritual account. My sins were washed away. I was forgiven. And at that moment, Jesus gave me as a gift his perfection, his righteousness, his right standing before the Father, the great exchange. And so if you look, I have given you a definition in your notes of imputed righteousness. But what I mean when I say that? God gives the perfect righteousness of His Son to all who believe in Christ. That's, that's simply what it means. God gives the perfection of His Son, the perfect righteousness of His Son, to all who believe in Christ. So it's called imputed righteousness. The word imputed means given. It's a righteousness that we did not earn. It's a righteousness that we do not deserve. It was imputed to us. It was given to us. Our sins were imputed to Christ. His righteousness was imputed to us. In fact, some scholars call this righteousness, this right standing that's given to us as a gift, they call it alien or foreign righteousness. It's not our righteousness. It's simply the righteousness of Christ that was placed on me. Now, now here's a, a quick question I want to answer before we get a little bit deeper into this. Why isn't forgiveness alone enough to go to heaven? I mean, why do we have to have the righteousness of Christ? 
I mean, if, if our sins are washed away, can't we just go into the presence of God? Why do we also need this position of perfect righteousness to go into heaven and be with God? Well, there's several reasons. First of all, in Proverbs 17, 5, the Bible says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So for God to justify us, it wasn't enough just to have our sins forgiven because we never, we never obeyed him perfectly. There's no righteousness. It's just, it's just sin washed away. So for him to rightly justify us, we had to have a right standing. Because if he didn't give us a right standing, he would be justifying the wicked. That's why Christ gave us his perfect standing. So when he justified us, he was justifying those who were righteous, given the righteousness of Christ. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards writes this, to suppose that all Christ does is only to make atonement for us by suffering is to make him our Savior but in part. It is to rob him of half his glory as a Savior. For if so, all that he does is to deliver us from hell, he does not purchase heaven for us. In other words, Jesus not only forgave us, He gave us his righteousness so we could go be in the presence of God and be declared justified. Because you know, don't you, that to get into heaven, the standard is perfection. Over in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And he says to the people listening that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. And to the common person, this was astounding because they watched the religious activity of the Pharisees. They would memorize the first five books of the Bible. They would fast twice a week. They would give their alms. They would, they would pray. They would memorize prayers. They, they were outwardly very devout and, 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 and sanctified from their appearances. And, and, and so the people would think, well, I could never, I could never live that kind of life. Then Jesus shares that it's not just about your outward religious activity, it's about your heart. That God looks at the heart, and even if you're doing outwardly religious things, but your heart hasn't been changed, then you are separated from God. Jesus deals with the the heart. But then, just to make it clear, the end of chapter 5 and verse 48, Jesus says that unless you are perfect, perfect, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Not just sins forgiven, but a perfect standing with God. That's why when we were saved, our sins were washed away, and the righteousness of Christ was given to us as a gift. Our position before God is that of righteousness. That's why we sing some of the great hymns of the faith that that speak of this doctrine. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Listen, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. If Jesus comes back and all I have to offer is my righteousness, I'm in trouble. Because I have fallen and failed. I need forgiveness and I need the perfect righteousness of Christ. So that's a... A basic definition, an information regarding imputed righteousness. God gives the perfect righteousness of his son to all who believe in Christ. Now, let me illustrate it. Okay, kind of let your mind rest for a moment. And let me just kind of illustrate 
uh, what, is, what imputed righteousness looks like in, in your life and in my life. The first illustration comes from archery. Archery. Probably everyone in here is at some point or time had an opportunity to shoot a, shoot a bow and arrow. And, and usually when you're doing that, you're trying to hit a target. You know the word sin means in the Bible? Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The word sin means basically to miss the mark. Now let me just, let me just ask you a question. Has anyone in here ever missed the mark? Raise your hand. Okay, if your hands aren't raised, you're lying, you just missed the mark. <laughs> we, we've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. When it comes to the record of our life, we have all fallen short. We've all missed the bullseye. No one in here would claim perfection. We are far short of that standard. But here's the good news. Jesus left the splendor and glory of heaven as the second person of the Trinity. And he took on humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was born of Mary, fully God and fully man. And Jesus began to earn a righteous standing before the Father. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He did everything right. He never said a cross word. He never thought a wrong thought. He was perfect. Can you imagine? Perfect. Listen, Jesus never, ever, ever missed the mark. And so here's what happens when we are saved. Jesus shed his blood to forgive us for missing the mark. But then Jesus, who always hit the bullseye, every hour, every minute, every moment of his life, he always hit the bullseye, morally speaking. Jesus gave us his perfect score. He gave us his perfection. Took our sin, our failure, gave us his perfection. So when when God looks at us, As imperfect as we are, he sees us as having always hit the bullseye. That is our position in Christ. Let me give you another another illustration. That of a test. A test. We know what tests are. We take them in academia to measure our knowledge, to measure if we are growing in knowledge, to measure if we are comprehending what we are learning. That is a Test. I remember one time I had a test scheduled in, in college, my bachelor years and uh, bachelor degree years, and, and, I, and I got up and I was brushing my teeth and I was thinking about the test and I realized I, I, I was not ready for the test. I had not studied properly. I did not understand the material. I just, I just was not ready. And I was brushing my teeth, looking in the mirror, and, I, and I, I don't know where I heard these words before, but they came to my mind and I said, if you, if you fail to prepare prepare to fail. And that's what I did. Anybody in here ever failed a test? Not a good feeling. Not a good feeling. Well, listen to me. When it comes to the test of life, God gives us his commandments, his instructions. And guess what? We've all failed. In fact, think about Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. Before sin entered the world, 
they, they had no sin placed on their spiritual account, but God still gave them something to do, to exercise dominion over the created order, to be fruitful and multiply, to not eat of certain fruit in the garden. He gave them instructions, commandments. Why? So they could, they could put on record obedience. Obedience to God's law and to God's way. Again, a quote from Jonathan Edwards. He writes, God saw meet to place man first in a state of trial or testing. And not to give him a title to eternal life as soon as he had made him. Because it was his will that he should first give honor to his authority. By fully submitting to it in will and act. And perfectly obeying his law. God insisted upon it. The, 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 the obedience of Adam and Eve... He insisted upon it that his holy majesty and law should have their due acknowledgement and honor from man such as became the relation he stood into that being who created him. In other words, God gave Adam and Eve something to do. He gave them instructions. He gave them a law so they could honor him through their obedience. But guess what happened? Adam and Eve failed the test. They did something God told them not to do. And from that moment on... Everyone that's ever been born has been born with a sin nature. Sin entered the world. It's corrupted all of our hearts, all of our lives. And because of that, we all sin. Everyone in this room, listen to me, has failed to do something that God's told you to do. Can I get an amen? And everyone in this room has done something God's told you not to do, right? In other words, God says, here's my perfect will and way for your life. Here here are my expectations. This is the way that is good. This is the way that is right. This is the way that is holy. And we all failed the test. Every one of us. That's what makes the obedience of Christ so incredible. Theologians speak of the active and passive obedience of Christ. The the passive obedience means that he he submitted to the will of the Father by going to the cross and dying on the cross, like it says in Philippians 2. He obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. His active obedience speaks of him actively obeying God in his life, doing what God told him to do, not doing what God told him not to do, living perfect obedience before the Father. Listen to me. Jesus got a hundred on his test. He didn't miss any answers. Not one moment, not one day did Jesus fail. So at the moment of conversion, for me, nine years of age, when I was saved, Jesus, who died on the cross for my sins, forgave me for my failures. Oh, that's good news. But not only that, he gave me his perfect test score. And now when God looks on my life, I'm in that position to him whereby he sees me as having a perfect score. And now I can be in his presence. And now when I die, I can go into heaven with that position of perfect righteousness. Not my righteousness. It's the imputed or alien or foreign righteousness of Christ that was given to me the moment I was saved. A test. But here's my favorite illustration of imputed righteousness. And I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. It is the illustration of a wedding feast. It's a party. And this parable that Jesus shares about a party really helps to drive home what imputed righteousness is all about. So look there with me. Matthew chapter 22. 
Jesus here speaks of a wedding banquet. When you factor this into the rest of Scripture, we, we believe that this is a, an allusion to, to fellowship with Jesus and with his people at the consummation of all things. In other words, when Jesus Christ comes back to set everything right, the Bible says in Revelation there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. So when Christ returns, he'll gather all of his people, and then we'll have a big party. Right? Marriage supper of the Lamb. And this parable probably alludes to that marriage supper of the Lamb. So Jesus gives us some principles as to how we can make sure that we're going to be at that party at the end of all things. First of all, for you to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb, you need an invitation. Look what it says in Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Notice this invitation. And so the parable pictures Jesus tasking people to go and invite others to this marriage feast. You need an invitation. And this invitation is for everyone. We're all invited to the marriage feast. Which leads to the second thing you need. You need to respond to the invitation. You need to respond to the invitation. Look what it says in verse 5. But they, those who were invited to the marriage feast, and went off, paid no attention. One to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. They, they ignored the invitation. This is probably a reference to the nation of Israel not recognizing him as the Messiah. So look what it says. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And so there are some in this parable that reject Jesus. They reject the invitation. So Jesus says, the king says, go out and invite more people. Which, by the way, that's what we do as a church. That's why we're here on this earth. We're, we're to invite people into the kingdom, to know the king, and to celebrate on that day. So... To make sure you go to the wedding feast at the end of time, you need an invitation. You need to respond to the invitation. But here's the third thing. You need to have the right clothes. Look what it says in verse 11. The parable takes an interesting turn here. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? You see, in this day and time, a king would often provide festive dress, appropriate dress to those he invited to the banquet. So someone that shows up at the banquet and they don't have on the right clothes would stick out like a sore thumb. Uh, many of you know that, that my family uh, lived in North Mississippi for 20 years, the Memphis area, before we uh, came back to Florida. And 
we live, you know, in, in close proximity to Oxford, where Ole Miss plays football, and Starkville, where Mississippi State plays football. And we have some family members, some extended family members on Claire's side of the family, who are Gator fans, and 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 season ticket holders. And so there are a couple times where they would contact us and say, uh, "I'm not going to make it up to the game." I'm going to send you the tickets, and you can go to the game, which was always fun. And, and so I remember we went to a couple of Ole Miss games, a Mississippi State game where they were playing the Florida Gators. But here's the deal. The tickets were right in the middle of all the Florida Gator fans. And let me just tell you, I don't wear Gator stuff. I just don't do it, all right? And, and, and so we'd go to the game, and, and, and we'd sit right in the middle of all the Gator fans, and I would be, I would stick out like a sore thumb. I was not dressed appropriately for that event, according to those Gator fans. And I would cheer, not real loudly, but I would cheer for the Mississippi teams, all right? What's the deal? I, I stood out. I didn't blend in. Well, here in this parable, there's a man who, who, does, who stands out. He doesn't blend in with the rest of the guests. He doesn't have the right clothes on, the right, the right garments. What, what, what's going on? Here, look what it says back in the text. It says, how did you get in here with a wedding garment? And he, the man, was speechless. He was speechless. You see, this man who's dressed in the wrong clothes, picture someone that wants to go to heaven, but they want to go to heaven on their own terms. And the Bible teaches there's only one way to heaven. It's only through Christ that a person can go to heaven when they die. Theologian Jay Nolan writes this, If the first part of the parable has to do with the decisive exclusion and replacement of those who fail to honor the summons when the wedding feast is ready, the second part of the parable has to do with the impossibility, listen, of coming to the wedding feast on one's own terms. This guy who doesn't have the right garments pictures someone that says, Yeah, I want to I go to heaven, but I'm going to wear what I want to wear. And the Bible says he is called to account. You say, Pastor Wade, why can't I accept the invitation that Jesus offers to be saved? And just say, I accept it, but I don't really want the righteousness of Christ. I think I've got enough righteousness of my own. To get into heaven. You know what it says over in Isaiah 64 verse 6 about your righteousness and my righteousness? It says our righteousness is like filthy rags before a holy God. The best we can muster. Like filthy rags. We are so far from, we've missed the mark. We failed the test. We are so far from perfect. We dare not try to step into the presence of a holy God robed in our own righteousness. We need another's righteousness. We need the garments that Jesus provides. And this is a picture of imputed righteousness. In fact, Isaiah picks up on this theme in Isaiah 61.10 when he says... I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he, listen, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with, listen, the robe of righteousness. 
As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adores herself with her jewels. Wedding imagery here. But notice what he says. Salvation is like putting on a robe of righteousness. And so, when it's all said and done, we go walking into the presence of God at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we need to have the right clothes on. We need to have the righteousness of Christ. Because look what the parable says. The king says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. We're all called, we're all invited to come to Jesus and to be saved and to celebrate in heaven. But we're only his, we're only chosen if we have on the right garments. The righteousness of Christ is given to us as a gift at the moment we are saved. Or let me say it like this. You have to be saved to be robed in the righteousness of Christ. And those who do not have his righteousness will be cast into eternal judgment. So, here are the implications. and We'll be through. This doctrine has great implications for at least three areas, more than this, but let me just give you three and, and we'll, be, we'll be finished. First of all, this doctrine has implications for our assurance. Our assurance. There are days in the Christian life where we will not feel justified. <laughs> there are days in the Christian life where we will feel our frailty and our failure and our weakness and our imperfection, and somewhere down deep in our heart or in our minds, we, we might wonder, do I really belong to God? Am I truly His? And that's when we cling to this doctrine of imputed righteousness. Based upon the authority of Scripture, when you place your faith in Christ, your sin was forgiven by His shed blood, and His Perfection was given to you as a gift. So now God looks at you as, as being robed in the righteousness of Christ. So are there going to be days when we feel our failures and our frailties? Yes! But that doesn't change our standing. We have on those robes. And nothing can change that. We are rightly related to God. We are justified based upon the righteousness of Christ and the shed blood of Christ. Not only will we struggle with our imperfection, but sometimes the accuser comes knocking, doesn't he? You know, one of the titles the Bible gives Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And he'll come knocking. And, and he'll remind you of your past. And he'll point out some of your present weaknesses and failures. And the devil will accuse you with his vile heart and mind, causing you to doubt, am I truly his? Do I belong to Christ? In that moment, you can say to Satan, Satan, you're right. I am imperfect. But guess what? I'm wearing the righteousness of my Savior. I belong 
in the presence of God. And nothing will ever change that. In fact, it says over Revelation chapter 12, when Satan is accusing those who are living faithfully in the midst of the end times scenario, it says they overcame him, the accuser of the brethren, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. As if to say to Satan, we have Jesus. We are rightly related to God based upon Christ. Nothing and no one can change that reality. This doctrine also has implications for our obedience. Our obedience. Obedience, listen to me, for the Christian is not a grasping after a better standing with God. My kids, you know, growing up, in uh, elementary school, every kid had this as a way to, to maintain good behavior in the classroom. The teachers would have some sort of system, like clips or colors. And, and the system went like this. If you messed up today and did something wrong, we'll move your clip down to show you that, hey, you better watch it, right? And, but if you do good, we'll move your clip up. Or change your color, whatever the case may be, to show you, hey, you're doing good. And and so that mindset is, let's earn a better standing with the teacher, right? And that's good, it works. Glad for that. But it's not that way spiritually. And a lot of Christians think it is. They think, well, if I'm... If I'm having my quiet time and I'm, I'm doing this and doing that and, 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 and you know, all the right Christian stuff, then God's going to like me more. I'll have a better standing with him. I'll move my clip up. And if I have a bad day, you know, if I have a day where I, I stumbled and fell, boy, my clip got moved down. God is mad at me. And, you know, he's probably got his arms crossed and his back turned to me. And we project upon God that same kind of mindset that our obedience gains us a greater standing with God. But listen to me, as a Christian, you cannot have a greater standing with God than complete forgiveness and righteousness accredited to your account. There is no better standing than that. That's a perfect standing with God. There's nothing you can do to improve that standing. Of course, there's blessing and obedience. God tells us to, what to do, and, and, and there, there, there are blessings when we obey and consequences when we disobey. But listen to me. Obedience doesn't improve your standing with God. You have a perfect standing with God, a perfect position. So, obedience begins to be lived out, listen, on the basis of gratitude. And there's a huge difference. If you're obeying to try to get God to like you more, you're going to be miserable. Because you're going to wonder, have I done enough? But when you understand that in Christ you have been saved and robed in the the perfection of his son, that your, your obedience doesn't gain you anything, then you begin to obey because you want to show God how grateful you are for that position. And obedience becomes not a burden, but a joy. Because you're showing to God, this is how much I love you. This is how grateful I am for what you've done. I'm going to obey you in my life. And so, this doctrine has implications for our assurance, our obedience. But third and last, our, this is a big one. 
our humility. Our humility. When we get to heaven, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Those that know Christ were gathered together by Christ. The saved are gathered together, brought home to heaven. We will see Jesus as we heard earlier. What a day that will be. Can I tell you this? No one's going to be walking around heaven thinking, I deserve to be here. No one's going to say, hey, can, hey, Lord, can we do a replay of my life so I can show everybody how great I was to earn this spot in heaven? No, in heaven, we will all have a deep awareness of our, of our failures and the fact that the only reason we're there is because of God's grace. We're there because we've been forgiven of our failure. And we're there not because of our righteousness. We're there because Christ gave us his righteousness, right? And that will shatter humility in heaven. And it ought to shatter humility in the here and now. In God's kingdom, there is no one on a higher level than someone else. We're all sinners saved by grace. None of our righteousness gets the job done. We all need the, the righteousness of Christ. That's why it's called alien righteousness, foreign righteousness. When we get there, and I look at Daniel, and Daniel looks at me, it won't be our righteousness we're looking at. We'll be looking at the righteousness of Christ. And we will be humbly grateful before the Lord. This doctrine is a humbling, humbling doctrine because here's what it says and this is important this doctrine says you're not good enough Christ is so you need him and, and a lot of people listen to me are far from the kingdom because they don't like being told they're not good enough they think well maybe just maybe I can muster up some goodness and get God to accept me but that's not how it works your only hope is forgiveness and righteousness given to you as a gift. So it would have been enough if all God had done was just say, I'm going to forgive you your sins. I mean, that would be wonderful, right? Forgiveness in and of itself. But God doesn't stop there. He wants us in the presence of his Father forever. So not only did he forgive us, he earned a perfect score and gave it to us. That is imputed righteousness. That is grace Upon grace. Let me read it to close. I'm going to give you this short paragraph. It comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in the 1500s. It was a, a question and answer method of teaching doctrine and theology. And listen to this question How are you righteous before God? How are you righteous before God? Now we've learned it's not your righteousness, you're not good enough, you need someone else's righteousness. Listen to the answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, I love this phrase, out of sheer grace, 
God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if, listen, I had never sinned or been a sinner. And as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Now listen, last sentence. Listen. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. I love that. We've, we've, we've dove, we dove deep this morning thinking about imputed righteousness. But don't miss the simplicity. God offers you forgiveness and a perfect test score based upon the righteousness of Jesus. And all you have to do is receive it as a gift. Receive it by faith. Would you bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment? I'm going to ask you a question. If Jesus came back today, if Jesus initiated the marriage supper of the Lamb today, would you be there? Would you be there in the right clothes, the righteousness of Christ? Have you been saved? Have you been forgiven? Have you been born again? Have you received this gift of forgiveness and perfection that comes from Jesus only? Do you have that right standing with God? Maybe you're here and you say, Pastor Wade, I don't. I'm far from God and I know it. I'm far from God and I know it. But I want to be a Christian. I sense God working in my heart today. I've heard his word. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to experience all of this you've been discussing this morning. Can I just remind you? Salvation is a free gift that you simply receive. You're not saved by going to church. You're not saved by being baptized. You're not saved by being a Baptist or a Methodist or any particular denomination. You're not saved by doing good things. You're only saved by placing your faith and trust in Christ alone. He's your only hope. He's my only hope. He's the only way to be forgiven. He's the only way to be given perfection as a position before God. So as we stand and sing in a moment, if you need Jesus, I want to invite you to just, as we sing, just slip out of your seat, come to the front and say, Pastor Wade, I need Jesus. And we would love the privilege of sitting down with you for a few moments and sharing some scripture with you and answering any questions that you might have. But most of all, we would love just to be there with you in that moment as you call in the name of Jesus, placing your faith and trust in him alone, receiving the free gift of eternal life. God loves you. Jesus died for you. It's a free gift. Won't you come? Won't you come? Maybe God has reminded you as a believer in Jesus how wonderful this salvation is. And as we sing, you just need to worship. Just worship Him for, for what He's done for you. Worship Him for His forgiveness. Worship Him for His righteousness that He's given you as a gift. Just, just worship Him and thank Him for who He is and what He's done. Maybe God's leading you to be a member here at First Baptist. If that's the case, as we sing, just come down to the front and take my hand and say, Pastor Wade, the Lord's leading us here. We'd, we'd love to get some information from you. and We'd love to have you if God's leading this direction. Whatever God's doing in your heart and life, would you respond to Him as... We sing. Father, this is your time. Move in our midst by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.